0: Delighted to have everyone. One of the elders in his remarks will welcome you properly at the conclusion of our worship. I simply uh, say in the beginning we're happy to have you, and especially to have our guests and to have Scott and Cheryl Richards with us this morning. Scott gave us a very interesting lesson in our Bible class this morning, and those of you who were with us there really saw some enlightening facts and some interesting aspects about world missions. Scott is uh, in India. He uh, is one that we help support, and we're very grateful that we have the opportunity to enter into that support with Scott. And so we're happy that he's here with us, he and Cheryl. Get to know them. Uh, Please say hello and introduce yourself if you haven't done so already. But we're happy to have this very sound, faithful gospel preacher speak to us this morning. Scott. Once again, I'm grateful to be able to bring a lesson from the Word of God. It has been only a few months since I was here last, but I'm uh, always grateful to be able to be with fellow Christians on the Lord's Day. I was explaining to you during the Bible class period that one of the most encouraging worship services I've attended was in a tea estate with 22 people, and about six of them were children. And it was just so encouraging because they all sang with such enthusiasm. And they entered into the Bible study period, that is the preaching period, and every one of them that was an adult or old enough to read, every one of them had a Bible. Every one of them. Had a Bible, and every one of them opened that Bible whenever we were reading a passage of Scripture. And I could look down because it's such a small room. I mean, you've got to realize it's only about a 10 by 12 room. So, you know, you can see everybody. I'm standing, and I can look at everybody's Bible. And they all had marks in their Bible. And uh, so you could tell these were Bible students. These were people who took time to read it and study it. So these were clearly more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they searched the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 10, the Apostle Paul there calls for us to pray. And so I want to talk to you for a few moments this morning about prayer. Now, there's a reason behind that. We are, in this passage, told to pray for kings... And for all who are in authority. I work in the country of India primarily. I pointed out this morning I went over to Sri Lanka for about a week uh, this time. It's the first time I'd ever been in that country. But uh, I do, most of my work has been in India. And I've been to a number of other countries and done preaching and teaching and campaigns in the past as well. But uh, now my focus has been on India for the last almost 10 years now. And uh, in India, in 2014, they elected a BJP government. Now, the BJP is the Hindu political party. Congress had been in power most of the time from the time of independence in 1948, I believe that's right. And uh, they had been in power, the Congress party... With some interruptions here and there, BJP got in power one other time, and then they were voted out after only one five-year period, and, uh, but now they have gained power again, and Prime Minister Modi and, uh, uh, is in power, and many of you probably have seen him on newscasts. He's come here to this country several times over the last several years, and uh, our president has gone, or one of our high diplomats has gone. In fact, it was kind of interesting. I was flying through Delhi not that long ago, just within the last month, I was flying through Delhi, and there was a 747 the United States on it. I thought, I know the President's not here. Who's here? And it was Mattis. It was Secretary of Defense James Mattis. So uh, that's who was there. And that's why the 747 was parked on the tarmac at Delhi Airport. But Modi... And the BJP, uh, they have a desire to make India a Hindu nation. They want it to be Hindu. And so we ask people to pray for this government to be restrained in some of those efforts. And we pray also for our own government. We pray for our president. Whether you voted for him or not, you know, God doesn't say that. In fact, he says you pray for kings. You never get to vote for a king. Did you know that? You don't get to vote for a king, but you pray for a king, and you pray for all those who are in authority. And you pray so that we can live a quiet and peaceable life, he goes on to say. Let's go ahead and read this passage together. We'll read all the way through verse 10, and then we'll come back and comment on it. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified to in due time. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold, which is proper for women, professing godliness with good works." Now, let's stop, and I want to talk about this passage for just a few moments. When I'm in India or in many other parts of the country, a lot of times I get woke up by the Muslim call to prayer, the Islamic call to prayer. And it starts at about 5 o'clock in the morning. So if you thought you were going to sleep in late, you're not. If you go to an Islamic country, you're going to get woke up when they start to blare that over the loudspeaker from the local mosque. They're going to blare that over there, and you're going to get woke up. You're going to hear it. Unless, of course, you're like me, and you've been there so many times and listened to it so many times that it's kind of like if you live next to a railroad track, you know, after about two weeks, you never hear the trains because it just becomes background noise, you know, and you don't pay attention to it anymore. Your mind just kind of has this little trick. It doesn't pay attention to those things, and that kind of happens to me when I'm in those countries. But I still hear it. If I wake up, I hear it. And you hear it not only then, but you hear it four more times through the day. It's one of the first things you hear in the morning. It's one of the last things you hear at night. It is the Muslim call a prayer. And so they face Mecca, and they bow down on their prayer rugs. They wash their hands. They wash their feet. And they pray to Allah, the false god of Allah. Well, the Hindus, I met a Hindu weeks ago, by the way. In uh, Alabama, I was driving through. I stopped. Well, one in uh, Alabama, I'd gone into the pre, uh, to the uh, welcome center in uh, Mississippi. I Had to get out and walk around a little bit. And uh, he was getting out of his car. It was early in the morning. I'd left my house early, like four o'clock. And uh, so uh, I met him. He got out. He was very friendly. He was by himself. He was a Hindu holy man. And I didn't do this. I thought about trying to get some images of. Hindu temples here in this country, because there are a number of them here now, and putting them in my slide presentation this morning, but I didn't do it. I didn't think I had time anyway. But he was talking to me. It was very friendly. He knows Modi. Modi stayed in his house several times when he was a young man, young boy. And uh, he's very, he's got a couple of temples over in India, and so he goes back and forth to India, to Gujarat, which is the state where Modi came from. And uh, he goes there often. But he was talking to me and he said he is obligated because he's a Hindu priest. He is obligated to pray for one hour a day in the morning. Obligated to pray one hour a day every morning. And so that you have the Muslims there five times a day. Hindus pray once, maybe twice a day. They'll give their obeisance to their God. Oftentimes, it's in their own house. They'll have their own little idol. They'll have their little worship room. In fact, my wife and I were knocking doors, and a woman opened the door, and she was Indian, I could tell. And I could see pastor into her living room, and I could see their idol. They had their little idol stand and their idol there. And so they worship there every day. But, you know, in First Thessalonians 5 and verse 17, we are told as Christians... Our call to prayer is every day, all the time. Pray without ceasing. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we're automatically praying every waking moment of the day. But it does mean any moment of the day, whenever an opportunity arises or a need arises, we can go before God and put our petition before Him in prayer. Isn't that a marvelous thing? And so God says we are to pray without ceasing as Christians and desires our continual communication. He wants to hear from us. You want to hear from people you love? You always want to hear from people you love. You want to talk to them. You want to know what they're thinking. You want to know what's going on in their lives. God loves us. He sent his son to die for us. He wants to hear from us, and he wants us to pray. The Holy Spirit, through the inspired apostle Paul, here in 1 Timothy, gives us a call To a righteous and active prayer life. And that's what I want us to consider for the next few few moments as we conclude or as we talk about this lesson. First of all, he calls us to pray. And he tells us what we are to pray for. He tells us what we are to pray for. He says we are to pray supplications, that is requests on behalf of not only ourselves but also others. As we pray to God for them and for their needs, whatever they might be, whether it be some health issue, maybe it'll be some other issue. I get a lot of requests in India for me to pray for young people who are about to undergo examinations. That is, they're going to take uh, examinations that are important for their uh, advancement in education. For instance, when a 10th grade, when a student has finished 10th grade there, or class 10 they call it, they have to take what's called a matriculation course or test. If they pass the test adequately, then they can go on to class 11. If they don't pass it, they can't. They go into trades or do something else. They start to do coolie labor or something. They have to pass class 10 to go to class 11. Then once they go to class 11 and class 12, then they take their plus-two exams. Now, these are very vigorous and very difficult. In fact, there was a young woman... Who was a Dalit, that's an oppressed class. They used to be untouchables in India. Young woman just finished taking her class in Tamil Nadu, uh, took her exam. She scored 1174 out of 1200 on the test. I mean, she did well. She wanted to be a doctor. She wanted to be a doctor. But this BJP government has insisted that the curriculum has to be based on the government. That is the national government curriculum. It can't be based on the state government. But remember I told you. This used to be a country that was ruled by kings. And so Tamil Nadu. They speak Tamil. They don't speak Hindi down there. And so they. They want. Their own curriculum. They have their own curriculum. Now this girl's very smart. She's a. They would not let her go to medical school. She killed herself. As a protest she killed herself this is not uncommon bright beautiful younger her picture is all over the place in Tamil Nadu as a martyr foolishness that is going on in that country very smart very capable she passed the test and one of the government, work, government uh, people said well she could have become an engineer or something but she wanted to be a doctor and she had no, no uh, guarantee she was going to get into an engineering school either So she just killed herself. And that just it just it's tragic how they'll they'll do that in that part of the world so quickly. But we make supplications on behalf of the young people as they take their examinations. Because they'll ask for us to pray for them. And then he says prayers. That is, of course, constant communication. We tell God about our daily needs, we tell him about our daily activities, we tell him about things that we may need his assistance we pray for instance for strength we pray for forgiveness we pray for wisdom we pray for others widows and others we pray for boldness i talked about that this morning in the in the bible class the apostles prayed for boldness when they were told don't preach in the name of jesus they immediately went out from the sanhedrin and they went and they were with the other christians and they prayed for boldness and the next day they went out and they began preaching even in the temple itself. That's boldness. They weren't afraid of those rulers of the Jews who told them, don't you preach in the name of Jesus. And so he says prayers and intercessions. That is a care for others. We're interceding on behalf of others, maybe who are struggling or having difficulties of some sort in some way, and their uh, souls. Maybe we pray for their hearts to be opened, or maybe we pray that they might be chastened just enough to open their eyes. To the gospel. And then he says, giving of thanks. You know, we are to pray and give thanks for all things. Every good gift comes down from God. Every good gift comes down from God. There's nothing that we enjoyed did not, that did not come from God. Sometimes we think in this country, maybe, that we have worked hard and all of our hard work has resulted in all of the prosperity we've got. No. Yes, people have worked hard. I don't discount that. But we have put our trust historically in the God of heaven as a nation. And it is God who's opened up the windows of heaven and poured out the greatest blessings on our nation. And for that, we ought to be eternally grateful because we have so many blessings that we enjoy. And so he says, giving of thanks. And then he says, where we are to pray. And we ought to pray everywhere. He says that in verse 8. He says, I desire, therefore, that the, more, that the men pray where? Everywhere. Now, it was common in that day and time for people to come to a place of, uh, where there might be a river. You remember, remember in uh, Acts chapter 16, where did Paul and Silas go to find Lydia? They found her by the riverside where people would go, where the women would go in order to pray on the Sabbath day. And that was common. It would be common for them to go there. It would be a place where they could cleanse themselves because it was common for them to cleanse themselves prior to prayer. The Muslims, as I said a little while ago, they'll wash their hands, they'll wash their head, they'll wash their feet before they pray. By the way, they have a great respect for their holy books, the Quran. The Hindus have a great respect for their holy book, the Bhagavad Gita, or the Vedas. And so they keep them wrapped. They keep them in a very special place and then when it's time to read them they'll wash themselves thoroughly open their book and put it in a holder and they hardly touch it just to turn the pages they have so much reverence for the book the book almost becomes a God itself but uh, uh, it's a very important lesson for us when we do mission work in places like this to realize because we have a young man who comes over and I love him he's a good young man he was having a Bible study with a couple of uh, women and he had his feet crossed in front of him, kind of sticking out He's his tall fella, And so he had his feet crossed in front of him. And he took his Bible, he wanted to make a point, and he laid his Bible down on the top of his uh, calves, of his shins. And one of the women got up crying and just ran out of the room. Because she has this historical point of view that you have to treat this holy book. If that's your holy book and you treat it like that, to her, that shows no reverence at all. So it's an important lesson. One I'd never thought of before, never realized. And so you learn things every time you go. Every time you're there, you learn new things. Uh, And that's true anywhere you go. But, uh, you know, we are to pray everywhere. Well, they would pray in these places because it would be a place where they could wash their hands. Where there would be clean water, fresh water for them to wash in order for them to enter into worship before God. And they want to be cleansed. It kind of makes new, gives you new understanding or insight into 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. Not the putting away the filth of the flesh. But the answer of a good conscience before God. And so that's what baptism is. It cleanses us not from the filth of the flesh, but from the filthy dirt of sin. So that we have an answer of a good conscience. We can go before God and have a clear conscience that he is not going to hold us accountable for our sins. And so we pray everywhere. We can pray anywhere we are at. And so we see Paul and Silas later in Acts chapter 16. And they're fastening the stocks. And what are they doing? They're singing and praying to God. Even though they're in prison, they're in a very uncomfortable situation. They're praying to God. And then he says, for whom we are to pray. Where to pray for Kings. That's people who are in high positions of power. But he not only says that, he says for all who are in authority. All in authority. That would mean even the smaller officials. In India, you have to deal with officials all the time for different things that you need. And it might be someone who is an underling. And you have to go to that underling and it's not uncommon for them to want you to give them a bribe. In order to do their job. If you don't give them a bribe. They're not going to do their job. And so you want to pray for these people. That they realize this is ungodly. This is not right. Need to pray for our officials. That they not take it that way. In India you can get a driver's license. If you take the test. And if you take the driving test. You know you take the written test. Take the driving test. And you pay the fee. But you can also get it. If you give the man a little money, he'll stand right behind you, tell tell you which button to push to answer the questions properly, and you don't have to take the driving test. They'll give you a driver's license because you gave him an extra 5,000 rupees. No wonder they drive so Somebody asked me a while back if I was ever afraid on the mission field. I said, every time I get in the car. That's the most fearful thing I have to face because they drive crazy. They They all drive like Jehu. In the chariot. But anyway, you just kind of have to put your trust in God and go. But he said, pray for kings. Pray for all who are in authority. And then he says, pray for all men. Pray for all men. You know, we need to pray for the opening of doors. We need to pray for the opening of doors. Do You know, you can't go to a lot of countries and preach the gospel openly. You can't take Bibles in and distribute them openly. You can be persecuted for that. You can be arrested for that. You can be put in prison for that in many nations. We need to pray for open doors for the gospel to these nations. And for those that are open to remain open. And then he says we are to pray that men may lead, that that is Christians we may lead a quiet and peaceful life. We ought to pray for that. And then we are to be in godliness and reverence. We'd have a deep reverence for God, and we are to live a life that is according to that. That is, our life ought to be a shining example to all around us. Doesn't mean we'll always make that high mark. You know, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 was pressing towards that high mark, but he said he hadn't quite attained it. And Peter said, we are to be holy as God is holy. In 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, 1 verse 13 through uh, 15, be holy as God is holy. We're put off all the filth of the flesh, you know. We're to try to strive to be holy and righteous in our lives. And so we are to live a, li- a righteous life with reverence for God. Because God's great desire, he then goes into, God's greatest desire is to see all men sake. He wants to see all men saved. You know, you look at people and you think, well, that person's so wicked, they'll never obey the gospel, and they'll never become Christians. And sometimes I think about that and I think of Simon Zelotes. Simon the Zealot. You know what the Zealots did? These were zealous Jews. They hated the Romans. In fact, they would lay ambushes to kill some of the Roman soldiers and officers. If at all possible. They were Jewish terrorists. Basically, that's what they were. They were they were kind of like the Jewish ISIS of the day. So you think about that. Here was a man who was and he became an apostle of Jesus Christ. We need to think about that. Think about how some of these people changed. Think about the apostle Paul. How, when he was Saul of Tarsus, he stood by holding the coats of those who stoned the first Christian martyr Stephen to death. What a great example that is. God desires all men everywhere to be saved. He doesn't want just white Anglo-Saxons. You know sometimes we can be a little prejudiced. it's you know prejudice, by the way, is kind of common. I've noticed this in our. School, prejudice is kind of common. And by that I mean the Nagas hang with the Nagas. You know, they prefer those people. Why? Because they speak the same language. They have the same shared culture. They have the same background. And so they hang with those people. The Paites hang with the Paites. The Khasis hang with the Kassis. I mean, that's just common. Tamils hang with Tamils. They just know each other and they're comfortable with one another. And that's a little bit of what prejudice is. And that's not necessarily racism, but it's a prejudice. It's a preference that we have because of familiarity. But God desires all men to be saved. it doesn't matter if you're black, white, red, yellow. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter what culture you come from. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic situation might be. It doesn't matter if you come from a low class economically. Or whether you're the richest man in the world. By the way, I understand Bezos, who owns Amazon or is the head of Amazon, is now considered the richest man in the world because of the value of the stock. I saw that on the news the other day. You know, it doesn't matter. That man needs to know the gospel. He needs to know about Jesus Christ. And so we need to be preaching to everyone. God's determination is that all men everywhere would be saved. Why? He planned from before the foundation of the world to send His Son to die for all mankind on the cross. And then He says there is one God. Three personalities. One God. All three, of course, share the same attributes, divine attributes. Omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. All three have these attributes. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but one God, God and one Father. And furthermore, there is one mediator, he says, one mediator. That mediator is Jesus Christ. He explains that Jesus Christ, and he says, the man, Jesus Christ. By the way, I had somebody the other day, I was telling Brother Jim this last night at, at dinner. I had somebody the, uh, about, oh, I guess it's been several months ago now. But time flies when you get older. And uh, uh, I was talking to him uh, him in a Bible class. And he said, well, the Lord was called the man. In this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I said, he's just emphasizing his humanity. He is the mediator. You know, we have both both Jesus and the Holy Spirit intercede for us. But only one mediator. Only one mediator. And that's Jesus Christ. And why is he called the man Jesus Christ? Because we have a mediator who knows exactly what it means to be a man. He knows what it means to be human. He was tempted in all points like we are, but he was without sin. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us. And so he's endured all of the same types of situations and temptations that you and I have had to endure. Now, somebody might say, well, he never had to do this. Or he never had to endure that. He had to endure something that was very similar, I assure you. And because he did, and he did it sinlessly. Not like you and I. But he knows the pressure that comes from Satan for us to succumb. And to allow ourselves... To be drawn into or deceived into doing something that is contrary to the will of God. He knows that. And so who better to stand and defend us. And to mediate for us. To bring peace between us and the Father in heaven. But Jesus Christ, the man. Who is not only man, but also God while he was on this earth. He came in the form of a man. While he was man, he was also God. And so we have a great mediator. And why? Because God desires all men to be saved. He wants us all to be saved. And it says he gave himself a ransom for us. A ransom. He buys us back from sin. He can buy you back from sin if you're in sin. If you're lost, if you're outside of Christ, he can bring you in. He can ransom you. He can free you from sin. He can free you from Satan. And from the grave. He can do that. Because he died on the cross. For you. In fact in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 23. We're told you are bought with the. This was the precious blood of Jesus. It is that price. That purchased the church. According to Acts chapter 20 verse 28. When the apostle Paul was talking to the elders. Of the church at Ephesus. You can be purchased back from Satan. You don't have to lose your soul. You don't have to be eternally in hell. You can have hope beyond this life. You know, in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 32, when they asked that question about if I'm ever afraid on the mission field, and I said the the driving more than anything, our Lord said, do not fear those who kill the body. Because sometimes people will ask me, why well, are you ever afraid of the Muslims? I say, well, I've, I'm trying to take what the Lord said at face value he said don't be afraid of these people you afraid of ISIS don't be afraid of these people what are they going to do kill your body they can't cast your soul into hell he said don't fear those but fear him who can cast both body and soul into hell you can have hope in Jesus Christ because he died to be a ransom for you. So that you don't have to lose your soul eternally. By his sacrifice. Jesus delivers us from this present world. He delivers us from darkness. And he conveys us into the kingdom of his dear son. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. Paul was a preacher. An apostle. And a teacher teacher. Of the gospel to the Gentiles. So sometimes when I go into India. And they ask me what I do. I say I'm a teacher. I'm a teacher of the gospel. I don't tell them the gospel. I just tell them I'm a teacher. Because that's what Paul was. That's what we are. We're all to be teachers of the gospel. To those who are outside of Christ. And he says we are to be righteous. He concludes this passage. By saying that men. Should pray should pray, lifting up holy hands, not unholy hands, in other words, we can't be engaged in sinful activities in our lives, allowing Satan to still control our words, our deeds, our thoughts, and expect that god's going to hear our prayers. He said, we are to lift up holy hands now notice here he says men i- pr- I want men to pray, I desire therefore that the men pray." Everywhere, Men here is an error. That is men. That is the male gender. He says, I want men to lift up holy hands. That they are to be holy. Elijah was an example that is given to us in James chapter 5. Of a man who was righteous. You remember? A, uh, the, uh, effev- uh, the fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man avails much. And so we want to be righteous. In our prayers. Because it is effective. It is powerful. It can have a tremendous impact. When he prayed it stopped raining. When he said it was. When he prayed again it started raining again. And so he had a tremendous impact. Because he was pure. He was righteous. In his life. Strive, uh, he strove to maintain righteousness. In his life. When we do that. We enjoy the continual cleansing of Jesus Christ. And his blood. According to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. And we all need that because when we fall short. And then he says, likewise the women. Women, you are to pray also. There's no doubt. All of us are to pray. And he says, gune, that is women. That is the female gender. Likewise women. He says in verse 10, in verse uh, 9 and 10 rather, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and, and uh Moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearl or costly array, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Modest apparel. You know, we think modesty is somehow associated with whatever the culture is, whatever the customs are. You know, if we allow the culture and the customs to determine what modesty is, we're going to be pretty immodest. I go to India And in Tamil Nadu and in most of India, men are to not wear shorts. They don't like you wearing shorts in much of the country. They think that is somewhat immodest. Women are to have sleeves that come down to here. And a a shawar kameez is like a blouse that goes down halfway to their knees on their thighs. And the pants... They're a silky material. They breathe quite well. They're very, very cool, I think. But they, they're, they're very modest in their dress. Very modest. And even when the Christian women wear a sari, I've noticed they pin them in such a way that they don't, they don't even show their midriff. Like many of the women in India do show their midriff. And so they're very modest in India. In fact, we had a couple of women come over to work in the... Uh, school in the south and they were told no 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 you can't wear a sleeveless top they were wearing the Shawar Kamis, but it had no sleeve they said you got to have a sleeve down here that's what they expect they expect modesty and what is proper what is proper we come together to worship we need to wear what's proper we wear what's proper because it's proper for the occasion. Because we're coming before God in worship. And so we want to be proper. And we want to be godly. The women are to be adorned with good works. Good works. You know, it's the hidden man of the heart, 1 Peter chapter 3 says, that a woman is to wear that. That should be what she wears. She should be more interested in that. It was kind of interesting... Speaking of this subject, uh, Brother Randy Key is the preacher at the church in uh, Griffin, Georgia. I was there last Wednesday night. His wife brought out, they were talking about this subject, and she brought out that she had read an article recently that at the turn of the 19th century, they were looking at the diaries that were kept by young girls, young women, And almost all of them desired to grow up to be virtuous. Am I going to be a virtuous woman? Am I going to be a virtuous young lady? I want to be virtuous. And then they were looking at what women, young women were writing at the turn of the 20th, going into the 21st century, rather. And what they were writing was, am I appealing? Am I going to be... A woman who is appealing to men. Do I look good on the outside? What a difference in the attitudes that have developed within our country that we are so concerned about the outward appearance, whereas 115 or 20 years ago, they were interested in what am I like on the inside? Am I a good person? Am I virtuous? Women need to get back to that, and men need to look for that in their women. The young men in the Lord's church need to look for that in the young women that they marry. Because you want a virtuous woman. You want one who wants to be righteous in the sight of God, who wants to be filled with good works. You know, we are to realize that we are to pray. We are to pray always. We are to pray everywhere. We are to pray for all men. We are to give these prayers before the throne of God on behalf of others, interceding on their behalf, supplicating for them, and praying on our own behalf for forgiveness and expressing our gratitude to God on a continuous basis. Jesus came to die on the cross for you. He came and he shed his blood that you might be cleansed. And you can be cleansed this morning if you're not a Christian. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ and you're ready to confess him before men, turn from sin and be baptized into Christ, he'll add you to his church. Not to some denominational group, not to some man-made organization, but to the church you read about in the New Testament. The one that was established on the day of Pentecost, which we can read the history of in Acts chapter 2. And then it's development throughout the rest of the book of Acts. In every instance of conversion... Those people believed in Jesus, they turned from sin, they confessed him as Lord, and they were baptized into Christ. You can do that today if you're not a Christian. If you are a Christian, and you've not been faithful but need the prayers of those who are gathered here today, that you might be restored to faithful and active service, I pray that you will come, I desire you to come, and we are going to encourage you to come as we stand and as we sing this invitation hymn.